0: And open up to our old friend, the book of Romans. We are back in Romans. I like it. Page 945, if you have the Black Bibles. And it's Romans 9. We're going to read the first six verses. So we took a break for two months or so. We are back where we left off in Romans 9 here. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. And he says... To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. This is God's word, you may be seated. Thanks, Josh. Good morning.
1: Good Good to see you guys again. My name is Luke, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, thrilled to be back here this week. I was gone last week uh, with some of the... Other folks from our Redemption leadership team, we were visiting one of the churches that we've sent out to plant in San Francisco. Some of you know that. Uh, A couple years ago, Justin Anderson, who was the lead pastor at the time of Redemption Tempe, uh, had always kind of had this burning... Uh, kind of call sense uh, desire to go towards uh, to San Francisco and to see what God would do there and so we sent him out and actually every month uh, every week every month that you give a portion of that money that you give goes to help plant this uh, church right in the heart of the city of San Francisco so a few of us went out to encourage Justin and just to see how it's going Uh, this is the building that they meet in uh, Jerusalem Church of God in Christ Castle apparently is how it looks at the top Uh, but it's actually kind of a cool building you can see the slope that it's on there Uh, They're leasing this space. The church has given them some permission to renovate some of it. Uh, But the whole, all those upstairs windows you see, that's actually a parking garage. And so it's the, the, the big door on the left there. Uh, is the first place I've ever experienced valet parking at church. Can you imagine if our guest services guys had to try to do valet parking for you? Some of you would go, yeah, that, let's do that. Um, but, but that's because it's so tight and twisty that you'd, you'd wreck your own car if, if you didn't have some do that. So, so you pull up there and you go in, and uh, it, it's just really encouraging to see how this is going. They've been meeting for about a year. They've got about 100 people uh, that call the church home. About 20 of those are kids. About 12 of those kids belong to the staff and uh, pastors and so um, it's a really interesting work to be able to go into the city of San Francisco and begin that church here's the room that they meet in you know Justin it's it's been interesting because he had planted the church in Tempe that's now Redemption Tempe and he said everything that I expected to be hard about church planting in San Francisco has actually been fairly easy and everything I expected to be easy has been kind of hard It's been a lot easier because God has flooded them with some fantastic leaders. They have 100 people in about 11 redemption communities, which is fantastic. Um, So a lot of great leaders, but it's been hard to transition. And if you can imagine kind of picking up with your uh, wife and three kids and heading to San Francisco uh, and how challenging that would be, even things that we take for granted, like when I go to the grocery store, there's going to be a place to park. You know, you can't take that for granted in San Francisco. if you've ever been to San Francisco, if you ever go there for work or visit family or whatever, you understand this, that all the reasons why you, when you're there, you go, man, this place needs the gospel, are all the same reasons it's really hard to live there with a young family. And so it was good to see Justin and to see Emily and, and Lily and Cole and Penny, their kids, and, and be able to encourage them and pray for them. And, uh, and so anyway, I just wanted to give you an update on that. I would love for you to be praying for them. This is as difficult and hard soil as you can imagine. It's a very difficult place, a very expensive place to live. And uh, so please do be praying for them as, as they do that. And let's take a moment actually now and, and pray for Justin and his family in that church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the God who is able and powerful to save. God, thank you that you have a heart for the city. I think about Jonah, where you told him, how could I not love that city with all those people? And God, that is your heart. And so we pray for Justin and Emily and uh, their team and their family. God, we pray that you would sustain them and encourage them. We pray that you would continue to bless the church as it grows. I pray that you would give them endurance and faith, that you would continue to open up doors for the gospel, that you would provide for their needs. And God, thank you that we get to be part of that all the way from here. Uh, We thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as Josh mentioned, we are back into the book of Romans. And I just, you know, as we get back into this, I just think there are a number of things in life that you can't have too much of. Uh, You can't have too much encouragement. Right, anyone go. You know, what, I just my problem is I, I feel too encouraged. You know, everyone's just always saying these nice things to me and I just wish they'd stop. Right? Like no one ever feels like that. You can't you can't get too much, especially genuine heartfelt encouragement. There's no such thing as too much encouragement. I think there's no such thing as too too many hugs. Now some of you're like one is too many for me. But I like hugs. I mean, I think hugs, just everyone smiles. Most people smile when you give them a hug, especially if you know them. I mean, strangers, it's a little odd. Uh, but, but there's no such thing as, as too many hugs. There's also no such thing as too many Thin Mints. Um, thin Mint cookies, you, just, you put them in the freezer for a little bit. You eat them by the sleeve. I mean, they're just fantastic. There's no such thing as too many Thin Mints. And I think there's no such thing as too much Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8 was fantastic. You may remember we were studying it a couple months back. Really most of the spring we we were looking at it and it's just filled with some staggering promises and uh, we're not going to go back there as much fun as it would be to sort of uh, study all that over again but we're going to pick up where we had left off left off in chapter 9. But before we do that, I want to just remind you of what we saw there and remind you of of, of what we experienced really all the way back from the beginning of Romans, but specifically some things that we saw in chapter 8. So uh, for those of you who aren't as familiar with the Bible or familiar with this particular book, or maybe you weren't here during the spring, hopefully this will be a helpful kind of review. And those of you who were, maybe this will just jog your memory on some of the things that that we've learned. So, the book of Romans is is written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was a an opponent of Christianity, he was killing Christians, he was persecuting them, and he became a champion of Christianity. As Jesus invaded his heart and his life, changed his soul, and he became one of the main people that went around the Mediterranean rim starting new churches. He had this great heart to see the gospel planted in in key strategic cities. Paul, if he were here today, he'd probably plant a church in San Francisco. He'd know how strategic that kind of a place would be. Well, one of the places that he hadn't yet gotten to, that he wanted to get to, was Rome. Rome is this great city. And so he he wanted to get there. God just hadn't allowed that opportunity, but he's writing this letter to tell the people in Rome, hey, I'm gonna be coming. I, I hope to see you. I'm gonna eventually get to Spain, and I want to stop by in Rome on the way. And as he writes this letter, he's laying out the Christian faith. He's writing this letter to them, trying to encourage them in the gospel. In the first chapter, we actually get kind of the, the key verses of the book that sort of outline what the whole thing's about, where where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And we get that part about the gospel, because that's what he spends most of it talking about. But, but the context of, of the situation of the church in Rome is important to remember, and it's going to be really important as we turn here into chapter 9, because Paul is writing there where he says, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. What Paul realizes is that the Roman church has people from a Jewish background, and people from a Greek background, Jews and Gentiles, and this creates some very interesting tensions. Paul actually, a lot of his ministry is dealing with these tensions because a lot of the Jews grew up, and you needed to be circumcised, and you needed to eat kosher, and you needed to keep the law, and what does it mean now that Jesus has freed us from that? And so there's all these really interesting tensions, and Paul is writing into that. We outlines the gospel, and he says, listen, everyone has sinned And fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Worshipped the created things instead of the creator. And therefore the wrath of God is being revealed in the earth. We we experience it as God just kind of lets us do what we want. Says, hey, knock yourself out, go for it. But we also know that because of our sin, if we were to die and stand before God as the holy judge, his wrath would be against us. Our sin, our rebellion deserves God's wrath. And in chapter 3, we saw this incredible good news that Jesus Christ was given by God the Father as a propitiation. That's a fancy theological word that basically means wrath absorber. So when you die, if your faith is in Christ, you don't have to absorb the wrath that you deserve because Jesus absorbed it For you. And you receive that gift by faith, not by works, not by effort, not by doing a lot of good things, but by trusting in Christ. Chapter 4, Paul told us that that's how it's always been. God has always related to his people on the basis of faith, on the basis of trust. Tells us about Abraham. He says through this trust, we have now this new relationship with God, union with Christ is how he talked about it, that we come into the world sort of in Adam, that we have all the characteristics of our first father, we're fallen into sin, and that by faith we are joined to Christ, we're united to Christ by faith. Chapter 6, he told us, that sets us free, we're free from slavery to sin, and we now have a, a new kind of slavery where we want to serve and love Christ. We often want to do the law and want to kind of try to relate to God on the basis of law. In chapter 7, he tells us this is futile. It's foolish. The more you do it in your own strength, the more you'll struggle, the more you'll fail. And then we hit chapter 8. And chapter 8, again, you can't get too much of it. And it's just filled with these staggering promises. If you have your Bible, flip back to Romans chapter 8. And let's take a look at these. There's just some incredible, incredible promises. First one, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's amazing, right? If if our sin deserves God's wrath, that means we're condemned. But if we're in Christ, he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amazing. Verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and really that word is since. Since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This means if you're in Christ, not only is there not any condemnation against you, but there's a promise that you will get a new body. The spirit of God who raised Christ will raise you. It's incredible. It's incredible. Verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Listen, we're not just forgiven, we're adopted, we're accepted. It's not like we get to heaven and God's like, Well, yeah, your room's over there, I forgave you. It's like God wants to give us a hug. He's our Father. He adores us. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and there are a lot of those, aren't there? Anybody suffering? Anyone hurting? Paul says, here's a promise. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's incredible, because you feel this weight of burden. You feel this weight of pain. You feel this weight of suffering. And Paul says, it's nothing compared to the glory that is coming for the children of God. It's nothing. Verse 21 The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God is going to make all things new. The whole creation, one pastor said it this way, the children of God in their new resurrection bodies need a playground that's suitable for bodies like that. So God's going to make all things new. Incredible promise. Verse 26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know God prays for you? What a promise. This is a lot of people's favorite promise, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything in your life, if you are in Christ, is working for good. God is intending it for good. What a promise. Verse 30. Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. If you're in Christ, your glorification is as good as done. And then finally, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And then Paul got tired and he said, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that is triumphant. That is staggering. That is fantastic. Could you get enough of those? If you go, ah, I'm kind of sick of that. No. It's amazing. Now, what would you expect after all of that, you would expect some kind of, you know, either, I mean, he's really just kind of celebrated. Maybe there would be a little more celebration. But if you're familiar with Paul's writings, what you know is that oftentimes Paul's letters, you can look at Ephesians, look at Colossians, just as some examples. The first half of it is the theological truth. Here's what's true about God. Here's what's true about the world. Here's what's true about you. Here's what Christ has done. And the second half is, so now go live this way. In view of this, go do that, right? So we would expect Romans 9, 1 to say something like, therefore, in view of God's mercies, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. But that's not what verse 1 of chapter 9 says. What what I just quoted is actually from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And Paul will get there. He'll get to the point where he says, okay, here's the so what, here's what you need to do, here's how you live in light of this incredible truth. But first, he's going to spend some time talking about an issue that is very relevant to this church in Rome. It's the issue of how is it that Jews and Gentiles relate to God and relate to one another. And so there's a very kind of stark contrast as you read the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of, of chapter 9, it, it doesn't, it's this hard left turn. It really doesn't quite feel right. So what I'm going to do, just so you, you can feel this a little bit, because remember, these numbers are in here because translators and editors added the numbers for reference. Paul didn't say, okay, I'm done with chapter 8, now chapter 9. He just kept writing. So, so get this. Starting in Romans 8:38, just feel this transition a little bit. He says this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What? Huh? Well, but Paul, didn't you just you you wrote all that just a minute ago, right? Nothing can separate you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Why would Paul? Why would you be? Why would you be sad? And not just sad, but great sorrow, unceasing anguish. What is going on here? So here's kind of the big idea to understand what's happening in this passage today: is that the staggering promises of Romans chapter eight raise two things. Number one. They raise an important theological question, and number two, they raise an intense emotional pain. If you really get what Paul's saying here in Romans 8, it raises an important theological question and some intense emotional pain. So let's look first at this important theological problem. Why is it that Paul can, can go from exuberant, joyful, oh my wow, to... Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. What is happening here? Verse 1, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to why he put so much emphasis on that in a minute. He says, I'm speaking the truth. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So what is Paul's great sorrow? What is his unceasing anguish? It is that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, his brothers, his fellow Israelites, don't know Christ. That's what it is. saying, if it were possible, I'd be cursed and cut off so that they could be blessed and brought in. That's not possible. Here's what he says about them. Verse 4, they are Israelites. That's an important title, right? The nation of Israel, even that title, not just saying Jewish, they're Israelites. The the Israelites were the, the people of God, right? God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob was also called Israel. He's the God of Israel. It's incredible privilege and status to be an Israelite. And to them belongs the adoption. They were the sons of God, the glory. They were the one that had the glory of God dwelling in the temple. The covenants, right? All these, all these agreements that God would, would bless his people. The giving of the law, right? Israel was the only nation that God said, hey, here's, here's the best way to live. Here's the law. The worship, right? That means the sacrificial system and, and the lambs and the sacrifices that could be made. The promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, Right? That is, biologically speaking, that's what he means when he says, according to the flesh, uh, from the Israelites' gene pool comes the Christ. The word means Messiah, the Christ, speaking of Jesus. Jesus came from Israelite stock. He was himself a Jew. He was an Israelite. And it says that this Christ, interestingly, is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Amen. So if you try to understand what's going on here, here, here's what's happened. Paul has said, here are all these incredible promises for those who are in Christ. But then he said, but I'm in anguish because there's all these Israelites that are not in Christ. They're not trusting him. And the objection that Paul has answered as he's been out there interacting with Jews and Gentiles, the objection that he begins to, to write about goes something like this. Well, wait a minute. The Israelites had all these promises, all these staggering promises, all these privileges, and yet they are not trusting in Christ. And therefore, if they die apart from Christ, they are cut off. What what value are these promises that God is making in Romans 8 if He just discarded the people that He made promises to in Israel? Do you, you get the tension, the theological problem? How can we trust Romans 8 if, if all the promises of the Old Testament just don't count anymore to the Jews? God just sort of thrown them aside and given it to someone else, right? Think about it like this. I've got two daughters, Abby's seven, Caitlin's five. Imagine that for Christmas I've been sort of hyping up to Abby that she's going to get an iPad. She doesn't really want an iPad in real life, but if I told her that, she would want one, right? And imagine that I'm telling her about it and I'm, I'm showing her these different apps and games and things that she's going to be able to do and I'm telling her all these incredible things that are going to happen and then Christmas morning comes and there's an iPad under the Christmas tree but instead of Abby's name on it, it's Caitlin's. And Caitlin opens, opens it up and Caitlin plays with the apps and Caitlin plays with the games and, and you'd go, Abby would go, wait a minute thought you promised this to me what happened here's how john piper puts it he says this israel the chosen people of god with untold privileges and blessings and promises from god has rejected her messiah the kingdom has been taken away from them Gentiles are streaming in from east and west to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom while the sons of the kingdom are thrown into outer darkness. That's a quote from Matthew 8. So it seems, Piper says, that the promises to Israel have failed. God has not kept his word. His word has fallen. He was not faithful to his covenant. That's what Paul is dealing with in Romans 9. Indeed, all of Romans 9 through 11. Which is why, if you look at verse six, right, he he recounts all these privileges, all these all these things. That's why he says in verse six, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And this intense theological problem, this important problem, is, is asking Has the Word of God failed? Can God's promises be trusted? And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks as we explore Romans 9 and get Paul's answer to that question. And you see what he says in verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. God hasn't fallen through. God hasn't abandoned his people. And we'll kind of dig in to, to some reasons why that's the case. But that's the important question that gets raised. Now, we're going to spend some, some time on that, so uh, I'm going to just sort of invite you to come back. I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit. I'm not going to tell you how that all gets resolved. Come back next week and and we'll begin to look at that. But, but what I want to maybe just pause on real fast before I, I move on is, is some of you are going, man, this, that's all real, like, sounds real theological and a lot of history and a lot of stuff that I don't know very much about and I don't really care very much about. And just, just give me something that's going to encourage me. Here, here's the thing. Anything that I would say to encourage you rests on something. Right? There's a foundation here. And that's what this theology that Paul's gonna talk about. That's why it matters, right? This is resting on something. I mean, I could sort of print off a coffee mug, you know, a, a verse on a coffee mug and go, hey, you know, isn't God wonderful? Well, is he? We could crochet all these things about God's working everything for good, and is he? Can we really trust him? Right, so this is not a sort of side thing and just sort of for the heady people. This matters. Theology matters. All the encouragement in the world doesn't mean anything if it's built on sand. And what the next few weeks and months as we look at Romans 9 through 11 are going to do, it's going to add some rebar to the foundation of your faith. It's going to strengthen you and give you something to stand on. So come back for that. An important theological problem. But to apply this to us here today, Before we dig into more of the theology next week, I want to just tell you, this also, this passage in Romans 8, raises an intense emotional pain. It's an intense emotional pain, right? There's all these amazing things for the people of God. It inevitably makes you go, well, but what about my friends and my family and the people I love who aren't in Christ? And Paul feels that. Paul feels that intensely, probably more intense than you or I. I know I've had to repent this week as I've thought about my attitude in contrast to the attitude we see here in Paul. Look at what he says, verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That word unceasing means constant, it's continuous. It's always there. It's always lurking. It doesn't mean every moment he's thinking about this, but it means this is coming up a lot. It's on his mind a lot. He doesn't get a lot of, a lot of rest from the sorrow that he feels about people who don't know Christ. He's broken about it. He's hurting about it, right? It's always there, right? Those of you who are moms, you have this thing that most of us dads don't have, which is you, you're always on as a mom. You're always, th- you know, there's this thing there, and, and we can go to work or we can be at home and still not have it. They can be running around in front of us and we miss it, but you've got it all the time. And and whether your kids are at home or they're moved out or they're wherever they are or they're at dad's house or wherever wherever they are, it's it's always on. It's always on for you. You know what that's like. There's an intensity to that. And Paul is saying, I live with that, that awareness and therefore the sorrow that my fellow Israelites don't know Christ. It's there with me all the time. I'd do anything for them to be saved. You know, Paul, really, anything? Yeah. Look at verse 3. For I could wish, it means Paul knows it's hypothetical. This isn't real, but he's saying, if if I could, I I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I, I know it can't happen. I know this isn't the real world that we live in, but if it were possible, I would go to hell for them. That's what accursed and cut off. It's it's, it's one Greek word, anathema. It's, It's cursed, it's destruction. Paul is saying, I would go to hell for them. I would take hell if they would take heaven. That's how intense this is. That's how much I love them. That's how much I want them to know Christ. I would trade with them. And think about this. He just listed all that comes with knowing Christ in chapter eight. And he knows that nothing can separate you from God's love. But he's going, if it were possible, I'd get out of it so they could get in. Do you have that heart towards people that don't know Christ? I'm speaking to those of you who are Christians and you love the Lord. I mean, I I know for me, I I want people to be saved. A lot of the reason we started this church was to preach the gospel and see people come to faith. Some of you are are numbered among those who have come to faith through this church and this ministry. I thank God for that. But to go, I, I would trade my salvation for them if I could. Wow. I want you to remember this kind of love that Paul has especially in the next couple of weeks, because in the next couple weeks, part of how Paul's going to answer the question about how do we know God can be trusted is he's going to talk about God's sovereignty. He's going to talk about God's freedom. He's going to talk about how God predestines and how God elects and how salvation it happens apart from anything we do. And it's his work. And, and, and that's a hard message to preach, in part because so many of us have experienced people who had the head of Paul, but not the heart of Paul. And so when they talk about God's sovereignty, and they talk about God's election, and they talk about predestination, it's very cold, and it's very detached, and it it feels like, well, maybe God's just playing a version of duck, duck, damned. And it's just all this random thing. Listen, don't have the head of Paul and miss his heart. Paul is saying, I would trade it if I could. This reminds us of Moses. Moses said a very similar thing. After the people of Israel, while he had been up on the mountain with God, and they had melted all of their valuable stuff and made a golden calf. And God is mad. And Moses is interceding on behalf of the people. Here's what it says in Exodus 32. It says, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. See what Paul's saying? Or or Moses is saying? God, what they did was bad. What they did deserves your wrath. Forgive them, please, God. But if you won't, blot me out curse me cut me off let them go right that's the heart of moses that's the heart of paul but here's the problem moses can't die for the people's sins because moses has his own sin paul can't die for the people's sins because paul has his own sins right if paul went to god and said god i want to die for sins God would go, okay, well, you've got a lot at the top of the list, killing a lot of Christians. I'm going to punish you for your sin, right? So so as much as the, the heart is to say, I'd love to be able to exchange this, it's impossible. What we need is we need someone who has no sin of their own that needs to be punished. And that's what we have in Jesus. Jesus is the sinless Savior. Jesus is the one who goes to the cross, the Lamb of God who dies in our place, absorbs our wrath. Jesus is the one who is cast out, who is blotted out, who is accursed, who is cut off. Right on the cross, he's saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he is experiencing the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. So Jesus is doing what Moses couldn't do, what Paul couldn't do, what you can't do for the people you love, which is why we have to point people to Jesus. Because everyone will die, and everyone's sin will be punished. The question is, by who? If you die apart from Christ you will absorb the wrath of God for your sin. If you trust in Christ, he has absorbed the wrath of God for your sin. Paul knows how significant that gospel is, which is why he says, I so long for everyone to know it. It's why he's traveling the world planting churches. It's why he's going to say in chapter uh, 15, I try to go where no one else has gone because I want to see new people come to know this. Do you share some of that heart? Do you you look at people who don't know Christ and go, oh, I just, I would so love for them to know him. I want to ask you some tough questions to kind of drive this home and and try to get practical and get real, And, and these may sting a little bit, maybe they won't, maybe they'll be incredibly encouraging for you, but some important, tough questions that help reveal the degree to which you share Paul's heart. Here's the first question. Are you praying for non-Christians? Assume there are non-Christians in your life, in your family, among your friends, neighbors, people you work with. Are you praying for them? Not just sort of seeing them from a distance and going, oh, they don't know Jesus. Not even going, yeah, that'd be cool if they did. But actually going to God and saying, God, you alone can rescue, you alone can save. You alone are the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Will you do it for this person? Will you open their eyes? Will you open their heart? Will you help them to see Jesus as a treasure that's worth giving everything to have? God, would you do that? Paul did that. He says in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Are there people for whom you are regularly going before God, pleading with God to save? Second question, are you building meaningful friendships with non-Christians? So, so, so this is a step beyond just praying, though praying is significant. Some of you go, I'm far away from people I love who don't know Christ, but I can't do anything. You can pray. But if you are close, if these are people in your everyday life, are you building meaningful friendships with them? Would they count you as a friend? Would they want to spend time with you because of how you've loved them and served them? And even if they don't exactly agree with what you believe, they know that you're a person of conviction and they know that you love them. Are you building those kinds of meaningful friendships? If not, the Scripture says without love, we're a noisy gong, we're a clanging cymbal. Third tough question. Are you inviting non-Christians... To places where they can meet Christians. Right? Are, 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 you, are you saying, you know, where would be a place where I could expose this person to, to Christian friends, to people where they might see the gospel lived out a little bit and they might have someone share the gospel with them? Are you inviting them to those places? Are you having a barbecue and intentionally inviting Christians and non Christians to get them to know each other? Are you inviting people to church? Are you inviting people to a redemption community? Are you looking for opportunities going, how can I connect these people? Because here's what happens. A lot of times, especially like at work or some of these places where you're the only Christian someone knows, they can begin to look at you like, well, I can dismiss you because no one really lives like that. But then you invite them and they start to get to know some other people who really trust Christ and really love and really serve and are really friendly. And they go, wow, maybe this is plausible. Maybe I could Maybe, you know, if I were a Christian, maybe I'd want to look like that. Last question. Are you sharing the good news with non-Christians? It's wonderful to build friendships. It's wonderful to invite people to those environments. But are there times when you're opening up your mouth and sharing the good news? When was the last time you shared the good news of Jesus, what Jesus has done in your life, what Jesus is doing in the world, when was the last time you shared that with someone that doesn't know Christ? Now listen, I know some people are real gifted evangelists, right? That's, that's one of the benefits actually of inviting people to stuff is you invite some people around here and they're going to bump into some folks. They're going to bump into to Levi or, or to Blake Stockton. They're going to they're bump into Tina Brown. They're going to they're bump into Brant Derry. They're going to bump into Josh Watt. They're going to bump into some people who are going to sick them with the gospel, <laughs> right? And you go, I'm not that good at, you know, getting it started. Okay, then get them here we got some people that can hound dog them. We can do it. All all loving for Christ, but we can can do that. But but listen, do you really want to go your whole Christian life and never share the gospel? You don't want that. Do you really want to go, you know, the last time I shared the gospel was I was in college and we did some random stuff and that was two decades ago, but you don't want that. And I know, I know we're at different places, right? If you're a young mom and, you got, and you're under house arrest with young kids, you know, build, when am I going to build meaningful friendships with non-Christians? I don't, I don't know. But you can pray for that. You can pray for those people. So this isn't meant to sort of drive by guilt and say everyone's got to do this the same. But it is a serious question to go. If we say we love people who are far from God, Do we show it with our prayers? Do we show it with our friendships? Do we show it with our words? If if, if you're doing some of those things, if you're you're growing in those things, that's what we mean when we talk about living missionally or living with an outward focus. That's what we're talking about is having your eyes off of yourself. It's great to go, man, Romans 8, it's so good, but it's also a privilege that you have the opportunity now to love and to serve people with that same news. I want to close with this fantastic quote by Charles Spurgeon. Here's what he says. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for good news. Thank you that Jesus was the sinless one who dies in our place. And thank you that because of that news, we now have the opportunity to be set free to love people and to share this news in the same way. And and God, I know for me, I I pray that you would give me more of this heart. I pray for us as as a congregation and Redemption Church as a whole that you would give us this heart, that we would have Friends and neighbors and relatives and people we work with that we would be praying for and loving and sharing the gospel with. Give us boldness. Open doors for the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. So this is our.